Welcome to the North Sound Church Podcast. For more information about North Sound Church, please visit our website at northsoundchurch.com. Great to see you all this morning. Thank you so much for joining us for worship. Uh, special greetings to uh, Roger and Joni back from their missionary time in Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, good to have you guys back. And uh, how cool to have uh, Rachel and Matt with us this morning. Why don't you guys stand? I don't think, Rachel, this is your first time. Uh, second time. Second time. Oh, great to, great to have you. These are newlyweds uh, serving down in Paraguay, but going to be here for a couple of months. Matt, is that what I heard? Yeah, like six weeks. Okay. Great. Well, welcome. Good to good to have you guys. And uh, Andrew, sitting beside Matt, is heading to Africa to Tanzania. When this week? Next? Zambia. Oh, okay. Great. Well, it's wonderful to have uh, you heading out to serve the Lord in that way, Andrew. The Rutz family is just incredible in terms of their missional engagement around the world. These guys are real missionary family. Uh, and uh, want to, uh, again, welcome, uh, welcome all of you here this morning. So glad, um, so glad to have you join us. I uh, had got sad news this week, uh, and that was regarding the passing of Tim Keller. Uh, Tim, uh, probably you have all been influenced by Tim Keller in one way or another. How many of you have ever read a, a book maybe by Tim. Just put your hands up high. I want folks to see the influence that he has had. Uh, he was a, a PCA, Presbyterian Church in America, pastor, went to New York, founded Redeemer Church, and then they planted other churches around um, New York City. Um, such a, an amazing uh, individual in terms of articulating uh, the gospel in ways that folks could uh, gravitate to in such a winsome kind of a way and yet so very reasonable. So um, this morning's uh, talk is a bit challenging. It's a bit challenging for me and it may be a bit challenging for you. Um, what I would like to suggest is that if it doesn't sort of immediately connect with you, <laughs> that you consider looking at the video, um, which um, we welcome those folks that are watching online this morning. Glad to have you with us. Uh, and then it'll be on our website after that, so you can follow along if you would like to. Uh, and then um, if any of you want my notes, um, we can uh, make, uh, just send me an email and we can do that as well. The reason I mention that is that this particular one, we deal with some topics that are a little challenging and other challenging for me. I expect they might be challenging for, me, for you. This says nothing about your intellectual acumen. You, um, you are, this is an amazing congregation of really smart people, so it's not that, it's just the nature of the subject matter. Um, so I hope that's enough of a warning to say, follow along with me, and Bob, you stay awake, because if you start, if you start nodding, I'm going to get real discouraged up here. <laughs> Stacey, uh, remember the old elbow move? Yeah, okay, okay. Libby, maybe you can kind of help as well, okay? Okay, good. Okay, so we are talking today from the passage that Kathy read for us, and uh, our talk today is called You Are What You Love. So 
Kathy read the text, and as you'll notice, there's so much in it. We could go all sorts of different places with our text this morning. But as I began to read the text and kind of ponder it and mull over it, I came to the conclusion that there's a theme, a strong theme that we have here this morning, and that is if you follow along, and I really want to encourage you, please, as we exegete this text to have your, your Bible open or a phone app or whatever. If you don't have one with you, if you look in the row ahead of you underneath the chairs, there may be one um, hiding there um, waiting for you, but it would be helpful for you to follow along. So let's look at the theme. In verse 8, he speaks of standing fast in the Lord. We have a military term when a, someone walks into a room or a parade ground and says, stand fast. It means you, you hold right where you are, and uh, that's kind of what he's saying here is in the faith, don't be wobbly, but stand fast, be firm in the faith. Don't get wishy-washy in your commitment. In verse 10, he talks about wanting to be with them so he can supply what is lacking in their faith. So he's just commended them for their faith. They're strong in the Lord. He's commended them, and now he's saying to them, but, but you're not complete. You're still on a journey. And maybe there's some things because I've been along this road a little longer that I can help you with. And then in verse 12, he goes on to be very practical. He says, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all. This is a vision. This is a vision of what he would hope for them. And then finally, uh, in verse 13, he expressed for them the desire that they may, that he, that is Paul, may establish your hearts blameless in holiness. Holiness is a term that we use uh, to describe the journey of growing more like Jesus. And so holiness is one of the terms. Some of you may be familiar with the term sanctification. That's another term that's used to describe that. Um, discipleship or being a fully devoted follower of Jesus is another term. They're sort of all synonyms of what it is to have your hearts established in holiness. So the, the concept then that I think is the theme here is that they, the Thessalonians, would become fully devoted followers of Jesus, disciples who look like their master. So 10 days ago, we had an elder retreat, and in the elder retreat, we talked about discipleship. We talked about discipleship at North Sound Church. We talked about what we've done in the past, what we're doing in the present, and what we anticipate doing in the future, because as we talk about the future of North Sound Church, there are few things that are more important than us as leadership of the church facilitating discipleship for the family of God, for all of us, virtually all of us. And so it's important, I think, for us to understand then the question that is before us this morning. And the question that is before us this morning is, how do human beings become changed for the better over time? How do human beings become changed for the better over time? Six years ago, we did a study based on a book by Jamie Smith. Um, Kevin, could you pull me down just a little bit? Um, 
we did this study based on the book um, by James, James K.A. Smith. I'll be calling him Jamie. That's kind of what he goes by. Uh, called You Are What You Love. And we're going to do some digging in the scripture exegetically, but we're also going to take some insights from him that I, I certainly cannot claim uh, myself. So we're going to go through this. And the first thing is one of the most important questions, and that question comes out of John chapter 1, verses 35 to 38, where we read these words. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? What do you want? When you stop and think about it, it becomes a very big question. It essentially says, what do you want with your life? What do you want to do with your life? These guys left John the Baptist. They're following Jesus, who's the Lamb of God, and Jesus turns to them and says, basically, why are you following me? What is it that you want? Why are we following Jesus? What is it we want to do with our lives? So here we are on a spring Sunday in the Pacific Northwest, and uh, you could be doing many other things. And I ask the question of you, um, why are you here? What do you want? Some of you may say, my wife made me come. I didn't have anything else better to do. Or how about I like the club grub food? I like to see my friends, or perhaps... You would put it this way, or maybe not. God has given me a lifetime mission to be an agent of his kingdom. And I need this time to develop the character that will allow me to fulfill his mission. So if your answer is anything like the last one, and I wouldn't expect you to use those words, but if that's why you're here this morning, then... We are together engaging in the task of discipleship. That's why we're here. And what we want, friends, is what we love. And we need to be formed in our hearts to be aligned with God's loves. The writer of the Proverbs understood this when he said in chapter 4, verse 23, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. Jamie puts it this way. He says, discipleship is a way to curate your heart to be attentive to and intentional about what you love. So you are what you love. I have, uh, I've earned my gray hair. I, I don't know about you, but I've, I've earned mine. And one of the ways I've earned mine is by making mistakes along the way. Have you ever noticed how powerful they are as educational tools, making mistakes, and I've made a lot of them. I had to learn to apologize. Um, those words are tough sometimes, I'm sorry, but, but so very necessary. I've had to forgive people, and people have forgiven me. We make mistakes. One of the mistakes that I've made as a pastor, and unfortunately it's a mistake made by many pastors, is thinking that as the shepherd of the sheep, in creating disciples of Jesus Christ, what we 
are doing is we are educating you into being fully devoted followers of Jesus. And so what do we do? We say, okay, we have a responsibility as pastors to make disciples. So how do we do that? Well, we establish a class, right? Yep, thank you. Discipleship 101. And then 201 and 301. And by the time you get to 301, if you've listened to the pastor in 101, 201, and 301, you're going to be a fully devoted follower of Jesus, right? (laughs) Who said yes? Um, So it's not going to work that way, right? We can't educate our way into becoming fully devoted followers of Jesus. It just isn't enough. It's good. It's why we do Bible studies, etc., but it isn't enough. Rene Descartes was the famous French mathematician, and uh, he was known uh, for the ontological argument for the existence of God. If you want to know what that is, you can talk to our resident apologist, Jack Hoover, over here. Um, but we're not going to go there this morning. But one of the things he, he is famous for is the expression cogito ergo sum, which means I think, therefore I am. And it's kind of part of the background of the Enlightenment and the tremendous emphasis that we have had on our minds. We've kind of moved in the Enlightenment towards the idea of brains on a stick, right? Our mind is so important. It all has to do with our minds and how we think. Now, it's important for us to understand, I think, that development in our lives Um, has something to do with thinking. And unfortunately, though, discipleship began to be associated with knowledge. So the more you learn about the scriptures, the more, uh, the better a disciple you would be. I won't ask for a show of hands, but I bet many of you have known people who were full of Bible knowledge but were jerks. I, I bet you have. That's not in my notes, uh, and when I go off notes, I get in trouble. But my, my point is, is that knowledge in and of itself does not make us fully devoted followers of Jesus. So the Bible speaks of the importance of the mind. We don't want to neglect that. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Romans 12, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Psalm 1, blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way of sinners uh, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. So we affirm the importance of the mind. But if we're honest, we have to say there is a big gap between what we know and what we do. Paul understood this. In Romans 7, he says, I myself, in my mind, am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. So when we focus exclusively on the mind, we ignore the power of habit. Paul uh, says in Philippians 1, and this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, does the passage talk about knowledge in a positive way? Absolutely. But if you look at it more carefully, it starts with 
love, and then it really focuses on the reality of love. May your love abound more and more. And then it talks about knowledge and insight. It's love that is the condition for knowledge to take place. So we ask the question then this morning, how would our approach to discipleship change if, we were, if it were defined, if we were defined, not so much by what we know, but by what we love? Let's talk about restless hearts for a moment. Now, the case that we have been making is that while knowledge is good and indeed a part of discipleship, the focus should be on the heart. St. Augustine seemed to understand this in his famous statement when he said, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. If this is true, if the focus of discipleship is our heart, not, not, the, not that organ that is pumping, but the heart, the metaphorical heart, which is the center of our being, it's the executive center, it's the place where our will abides, it's the place where we make decisions from. And if it is true, what we have been saying, that it's not so much about the mind, although that's part of it, but it's recalibrating the heart, then it changes everything about worship, discipleship, Christian formation. Jamie points out that there are three important elements here. The first is that Augustine says a design claim. He makes a claim about design. He says we were designed, we were made for a purpose the Greek word here is tell us we have an end or a goal or a purpose that's found in our relationship with the creator who made us. We have to understand that first of all. Secondly, the center of our being is not so much the mind as the heart. As I mentioned, we talk about the will. In Psalm 42, we read, as the deer plants for streams of water, my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, the living God. We act, friends, on what we love. We make decisions from the heart. The third insight here is that we love because God first loved us. John 4.19 says just that. We love because he first loved us. And so if you put that all together, we find rest when we're rightly related to the one who loved us first. And this is our end, our goal are tell us, and until we find that place, we are restless. So there's another question that comes up, and that is, on what are you betting your life? Blaise Pascal was a, uh, a philosopher and mathematician. Some of you who liked math, I did not, uh, but some of you who like math may remember Pascal. And uh, Pascal is known as a first-rate mathematician, but he also, from a Christian perspective, was a very committed follower of Jesus Christ, unlike Rene Descartes. And Pascal, as a follower of Jesus, put forward his famous wager. And Pascal's famous wager was that you can choose not to believe in God and follow him, and it will have these certain consequences in your life. Or you can choose to believe in God and follow him, and it will have these consequences. And from 
Pascal's perspective, it was far better to, to believe in the truth of God and the virtuous life that came from following him and eternal life to come that any reasonable person would surely wager their life because you're betting your life would bet your life on that rather than on this. And so he said that you have to serve somebody and Bob Dylan put it in a little more contemporary way when he said, but you gotta serve somebody, yes. Indeed, you're gonna have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're gonna have to serve somebody. That's, that's Pascal's wager, that's his choice. We bet our lives literally on who we choose to serve. That's our telos, that's our goal. But it isn't something that we primarily know that goal. It's primarily something that we want. We want to be like that. It isn't just that we have the knowledge to be like that, but we want to be like that. Our sense of the good life has to do with how we think the world ought to be. We find our direction by our longings, by our desires. The aviators in the group will be familiar with the name Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. He was a French pilot, famous French pilot, um, eventually um, lost uh, in uh, the closing days of World War II. In addition to being a famous aviator, he was also a writer, and he wrote the book The Little Prince, some of you may be familiar with. And in The Little Prince, he said, if you want to build a ship, don't drum up people to collect wood and don't assign them tasks and work, tasks and work, but rather teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. Put a little differently, we under, need to understand in our lives this important place of desire, of, of what it is that we want and what we want being aligned with God, what God would have for us. The difference can be seen in those who do the same job. I, I love the story, perhaps you've heard it, of the three stonecutters building a cathedral upon which a traveler came and he talked to one of the stonecutters and said, what are you doing? And the first stonecutter said, well, I'm doing it because my boss said this is what I have to do. And he came across the second stonecutter and he said, what is, it that, uh, what is it that you're doing? And he said, well, he said, I'm the finest stonecutter in the land. And if you look at how smooth this stone is, and if you look at the angles of the edges, you'll see the amazing work that I am doing. He came to the third stonecutter and saw in his eyes excitement and passion. And he said, what are you doing? And he said, I am building a cathedral for the glory of God. Jamie says, you are what you love because you live toward what you want. And so friends, my question for us this morning is, what's your vision of flourishing that you long for? What's your tell us? What's your goal? We want to talk for a moment now about how we get there. What does this path of holiness look like? Paul describes the characteristics of holiness of a virtuous person 
in Colossians 3. He says, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you and over all these virtues put on love which binds them together in perfect unity. And then in Romans 13, he says, rather clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. So if we long for the telos, we long for the goal of being an agent of God's kingdom and ordering our lives around him more than anything else, we then begin to develop the virtues that are being described here that describe the character of the one we love. They're described in the passages that we just read. Now, as we begin to incorporate these virtues in our lives, what we do is we create an internal disposition to do good. We see this so amazingly, I think, in the lives of our children. Um, Ethan is now seven. We have three grandchildren. Ethan is seven. Um, Thomas is five, and Oscar Crane up in Bellingham was just born. He's about a week old. And uh, we, uh, we love each one of them dearly. When Ethan was about 18 months old, Barb was watching him, and one hot August day, a heat wave had hit Seattle, and they went to find stores that were air-conditioned because it was so hot out. And so they went to Bartell, and when they got to Bartell, they looked at whatever they needed to, but there was this, this chair, this lawn chair that was designed for little people. And Ethan insisted that he sit in that little chair and he sat in that little chair and, uh, and he didn't want to get out of the little chair, but grandma said, it's time to go. And so when she got him out of the chair and they started to head out of the, out of the store, he started to scream and, and cry because he wanted that chair. I have to tell you, if, if any of you have any doubt about original sin, have children. It, it, you'll, you'll discover something. But the, 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 the point is, is that this little guy knew what he wanted. He wanted that chair more than anything. And, uh, and, uh, and so he screamed and cried. And um, guess how the story ended? Yeah, he got the chair. <laughs> so the task of Sean and Jennifer, now his parents, are to begin to develop the virtues in this little life. And at that point in time, he had learned the word no, and he had learned the word mine. Am I seeing any nodding from parents or grandparents out there? Those seem to be the first. And then as he... Uh, as he uh, got a little bit older, and especially as he got a brother in his life, he began to learn the meaning of ours and yours. And he has begun now some of, that some of the virtues being inculcated in him. But the thing is, is that as Ethan gets older and Thomas and Oscar get older, this is never going to be complete until they cross Jordan, because you know what? We're still working on it, aren't we? Sean and Jennifer's job may be done in some sense when he goes off to college, but in another sense, this, this developing of character, this putting on these virtues is going to be ongoing. It's a lifelong process.
So Jamie reminds us to become virtuous. To become virtuous is to internalize the law, that is to internalize the things that we're supposed to do to which the law points so that we follow it more or less automatically. If you have the virtue, you don't need to deliberate about whether to do it or not because the right thing is what you want to do. It's internalized as a part of your character. So I sometimes like to use what would Jesus do as an indicator here. So we're all familiar, I think, with what would Jesus do. W-W-J-D, right? And it's not a bad thing. That It's not a bad thing to keep in mind. What would Jesus do? But it's kind of based on a false presumption. And the false presumption or premise is that if you know what Jesus would do, you'll do it. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I could raise mine to say how many of you have known the right thing to do and didn't do it anyway. Don't, don't raise your hand. But So... So the, the, the point is, is that the goal of discipleship isn't that when we get into a temptation and there's the right way and the wrong way, and even if we know the right way is the way of Jesus, the way that Jesus did it, and, and now we're having this moral argument with ourselves about what we should do. The point is that we have already internalized the right thing to do so that we don't even want to do the other thing. We just are on autopilot with the virtues because we want to do what Jesus would do. We've internalized that value in the executive center of our life, in our hearts, and now we simply want to do the right thing. Discipleship, then, is not so much teaching as it is virtue formation. And we do this a couple of ways. How do we form virtues? One of them is by imitation. The Bible speaks of this method clearly in Philippians 3 where Paul says, join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us in as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. So we grow in virtue ourselves by following those people that are our exemplars. They are giving us an example of how to do this. They provide practical insight We see that they are doing good, and now we want to do that as well. So we we choose elders at North Sound Church carefully, and uh, typically how it works is that the existing elders, in prayer and discussion, uh, put forward uh, the name to the congregation at the annual meeting, the name of someone they think should be an elder. And that elder is evaluated on a number of different areas, but one of them is that they're an exemplar. They're, they're already doing the work of an elder. They're already living the life of an elder. And so we just recognize that. And I, I want to point out to you today uh, the elders um, who are in the room. Kathy, who read the scripture this morning, is an elder. Um, I think most of you know Jack Hoover. Uh, we all look up to him. Uh, Jack, would you, would Jack just stand for one second, would you? Um, and just stay there standing for a minute. And John is in the back. Um, John, could you stand or wave back there? And I don't think I saw Dan here and Dennis. 
Uh, they're not in this service, but um, we, we have these guys read scripture, and one of the reasons is so you see who they are, but these are people that I can say are exemplars. They're, they're really, I really genuinely believe that this is a critical year in the life of our church, and our elders are here for such a time as this. You guys may be seated, thank you. Um, but they're not the only exemplars here at North Sound Church. Um, and there are others around who have been on either the journey a little longer or who have gone a little deeper, and you will see them and you'll notice them, and uh, they may be younger or older, but I encourage you to think about having an exemplar, a mentor, someone who is farther along in the faith. We grow also in virtue by following, virtu- oh, by, excuse me, by um, also... Pra- uh, the practices with which we engage in virtue formation through practices. These are routines, rhythms, and rituals that help us to have a disposition towards our goal. When I was uh, working as a Navy chaplain with the Marine Corps, I had um, a, uh, I didn't have a lot of upper body strength. And so uh, in the Navy, you, you, uh, you do push-ups, sit-ups, and you run a mile and a half, and you get evaluated every six months relative to your physical uh, fitness. Uh, with the Marine Corps, it's pull-ups, and it's, uh, and it's running three miles. Right? Harder, right, Bob? And so um, I had to go through that routine. I couldn't do one. Uh, maybe I could get out one pull-up, but I was like, not very good at this, so I got a membership at Harbor Square and went down and began to work out on those machines so that I could be uh, fully qualified working with my Marines. Practicing is so important. Do you know why we gather for worship? And one of the reasons is because of the ritual of worship. I love my Pentecostal roots. There is so much good about my Pentecostal roots. But one of the things I remember as a kid growing up was other churches, especially mainline churches, were considered by us to be ritualistic. And uh, that, they, that they, 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 they sort of had an empty liturgy, you know, was kind of the way we looked at it because the Spirit was with us and we were kind of loosey-goosey and what the Spirit wanted to do was what we could do, right? But what we've come to discover is that ritual is a good thing because it forms us. Do you know why we sing? Why those words are up here? Because it forms us. Do you know why we pray? Because it forms us. Why do we say the Lord's Prayer every Sunday? Because it's the model prayer. And as we pray it, it forms us. All these things are formational in our lives and they form us. And so it's important for us to understand that. So Jamie summarizes that what we have is The saying that if you are what you love and if love is a virtue, then love is a habit. This means that our longings and desires orient us to some version of the good life as shaped by imitation and practice. So what he says is if you are what you love and love is a habit, then discipleship is a rehabituation of our lives. Okay, so we've developed these bad habits Whatever they may be, fill in the blank, but we've developed these bad habits. And what discipleship is, is reforming our habits. It's reforming our habits to want the good. 
It's reforming our habits in our heart so that we will follow that which is good in our lives, not because we have to, but because the habit is formed and now we want to. So I've been doing the Noom um, diet, okay, confession. And what's interesting about the Noom diet is that um, they want you each day to read some articles that are, that's the head pack, right? It's the knowledge piece of this. And so they give you a lot of information about physiology and how dieting works and that sort of thing. So every day you got this knowledge piece. But what's interesting is that what's really formational, as good as that is, is every morning they want you to weigh yourself and then they want you to enter in what you had to eat for breakfast and what you had for a snack in the morning and what you had for lunch. And you know what they're doing? They're rehabituating me. And the rehabituation is forming new habits so that instead of wanting a quarter pounder with cheese, fries, and a milkshake, I want broccoli. <laughs> well, not, not, maybe not quite. Maybe not quite that far. The point is, is that we know that we are changed to be like Jesus through developing new habits. We rehabit ourselves in cooperation with God's Holy Spirit and begin to develop the fruit of his spirit in our lives. So as human beings, we don't always love what we should. When our hearts and desires are directed other than to God, our orientation is messed up. The compass that guides our lives is off. We get false bearings, and it's disastrous for our lives. In 1914, not long after the sinking of the Titanic, there was another tragic loss of life off the coast of Virginia. In January, there was fog, and the thick fog, in the thick fog, the steamship Monroe was engaged with the merchant vessel Nantucket and eventually sank. Forty-one sailors lost their lives on the frigid waters of the Atlantic. Well, it was the captain of the Nantucket, Osmond Berry, who was arraigned on charges. In the course of the trial, Captain Edward Johnson was grilled on the stand for five hours. And the grilling had to do with the nature of his compass because his compass was several degrees off of the magnetic compass. Um, Greg knows that when, you, when you're flying, one of the first things you do before taking off is you orient your direction finder to the magnetic compass. You make sure in your checklist that the two are engaged together. Well, for a year, the captain of the Monroe, Captain Johnson, had never gotten the compass aligned to the magnetic compass, so it was always a couple of degrees off And it proved to be critical in this particular incident in spite of the fact that he didn't think navigation in coastal waters required him to fix it. He thought it was okay. But there were tragic consequences. And the realization of this tragic consequence of the compass being a few degrees off explains the New York Times talking about the heart-rendering picture at the end of the trial. 
They said later the two captains met, clasped hands, and sobbed on each other's shoulders. The sobs of these two burly seamen are a moving reminder of the tragic consequences of misorientation. The reminder for us is this, if the heart is like a compass, then we need to regularly calibrate our hearts, turning them to be directed to the creator, our magnetic north. Now, Jamie comments on this illustration when he says, it's crucial for us to recognize that our ultimate loves, longings, desires, and cravings are learned. And because love is a habit, our hearts are calibrated through imitating exemplars and being immersed in practices that over time index our hearts to a certain end. We learn to love them not primarily by acquiring information about what we should love, but rather through practices that form the habits of how we love. These sorts of practices are what he calls pedagogies or teachings of the, of the desire, not because they're lectures that inform us, but because they're rituals that form and direct our affections. Another way of saying this is that you are what you love, you are what you worship. Luther said the thing that our heart clings to is really our God. We cultivate our hearts through worship to that which we love. I close uh, with a passage of scripture now from Colossians 3. Earlier we read chapter 3 verses 12 to 14 that describes some Christian virtues. I want you to notice what follows here in verses 15 to 17. Paul says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts since as members of one body you were called to peace and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms. How does it happen? Through psalms and hymns and songs of the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts, and whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Friends, may the peace of Christ rule in your hearts as you seek increasingly to look like your Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you this morning for the blessing of your presence with us, for your word, a lamp to our feet, a light to our pathway. Lord, help us to understand the value of knowledge, but help us, Lord, especially to understand how we need to regularly assure that our desires that the decisions of our hearts are calibrated to look like you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.